All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Another episode of Questlove Supreme is upon us. Very happy day today. Here with my family, my team Supremas. Hey, how you guys doing? What up, what up? Hello. The way that we're uh, progressing uh, in the world, it's only a matter of time before we can actually take our theme song back. No. Something I... I think tonight would have been a good night for for Tales from the Latin Quarter and uh, (laughs) all kinds of things tonight. (laughs) See, our our guest, she just had some... some, Well, we we just might have to insert those things. Uh, I'm here with Team Supreme. Uh, here with uh, Almighty Unpaid Bill, making yeah. moves. Always. How you doing, Unpaid Bill? Wait, Unpaid Bill, are you part of Encanto at all? Like, is that any of your music? No, no. I'm friends. Motherfucker, with the guy that's who not wrote you it. hitting Bruno. No, I wish I was. Honestly, my 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 bank wishes that I was uh, knew something about Bruno, but I don't talk about him or anyone. I have no. I have, I have nothing to do with Bruno. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did though, man. Like ten weeks at number one or some shit. Like I wish it, but, it's still nope. number one, right? Yeah. Like yo, Lin Manuel is gonna mess around and and like beat Boys to Men and Mariah Carey. <laughs> is that still the longest number one number one the song? One sweet on day, it? I think it is. Okay, I mean I'm I'm from the old school sound scan, so you know or whatever uh, method they use now to. Yeah, this new math don't count. Like, we come from an era where motherfuckers had to leave their house to buy shit. Exactly. Exactly. That's a, exactly. This is a dude. This is a new. This is, yeah, that, that was the way we did that part. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, because Laia is, you know, she's uh, she's Gen Z. How you doing, Laia? <laughs> I'm doing amazing, except for this uh, Man, this whole gas situation. But I'm good. 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 What's, what's I'm gas good. looking like in, in L.A. right now? Well, it's funny you ask that, my rich friend. Uh, currently, gas in Los yeah. Angeles is is uh, six dollars. We are at about five ninety something. Yeah, we're like it was like four dollars out here. Uh, y'all got I am Legend gas prices out there. Wait a minute, this is something. I, I, Fonte, do you drive? 
Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, this is a question we never... I mean, it's been five years, but I just don't... I can't see Can what I kind of... Like, what, car, what kind of car do you have? Um, I got a, a Lexus um, RX 350. Um, that sounds swanky. Like, yeah, okay. It's, yeah, I mean, hey, it's paid for. I ain't buying another car, so yeah, we're going to go. ride it out. All right. <laughs> I once I once FaceTimed Fonte while he was in his car outside of the chicken shop, I believe, is what happened. Do you have like a cigarette hanging out of his mouth with just one hand on the wheel? Nah, I just had to do it. Leaning all the way back like, like Dame Dash and uh, Payton Fool? Yeah, yes. I have my black father, you know, just you, get to, you get home and you pull up in the driveway and you just sit there for about an indeterminate amount of time. Am I the only, oh, damn, I don't know if this is a TMI moment. Am I the only one that sometimes just has to sit in the car for 10 minutes just so you could brace yourself for uh, yes. whatever's waiting for All you? All the time. You are not alone. All the time. You're not alone. You not alone. That, that is, oh, yeah, so that's that universal is. talk. Oh, yeah. Straight up. Okay. I'm, I'm so happy with my relationship, y'all. I was just asking for a friend. Sugar <laughs> Steve, how you doing? I'm good, Amir. Any Anything interesting happening in the network or, you know? Oh, gosh. I mean, you know... Um, I, I I didn't anticipate you asking me that question, so I don't okay. Know well, what let to me say. just start again. How you doing, Steve? I'm. I didn't anticipate you asking me that either, so I, <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, all right. So, and uh, I'm 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 winging this, so I'm trying to keep it real succinct because I realized that our guest hasn't spoken a word yet because I didn't address her. Or all right, I know, I know. So look, when when cats when when dudes my age um, start reminiscing about you know quote unquote the good old days or real hip-hop or true school or whatever we say um our guest name should ring familiar i think that the the thing about well the thing is is that even though i've never read an interview or seen a television interview or heard it at radio interview on the radio or even exchanged any sort of casual banter with our guest or even dm crept uh, my way into a friendship or a relationship, um, which is, I know that may, I made that sound weird, but, you know, DM creeping your way into free friendships is, is kind of real. Like, I can actually say that I'm genuine friends with, like, Henry Winkler and Morgan Fairchild just from DM creeping, which is kind of weird. I'm also friends with Tasty Cake, Steve. Wait, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I, wait, I like wait, making wait, friends wait, wait. with, with, with uh, non-human wait. entities on Twitter. Baked goods. What? I, I, Morgan Fairchild, dude, it's so random. She started liking like <laughs> she started liking a whole bunch of my tweets, and then we're we're actually BFFs. Like like, hey, when you're in town, let's go to dinner. I mean, I haven't done it yet, but I think I'm down with Morgan Fairchild, yo. Oh my like, gosh, I know. Don't see like that the, the the t- the eight year old news kind of like happy yeah. for me right now, right? I'm thrilled. <laughs> I, I I know I know Monica's like how is this going to relate to me? All right, my whole point is that um, you know I I I don't exactly have a relationship with our guest on the show, having grown up in the age of hip hop where you know transition from twelve inch uh, and singles to LPs, and I'm part of the generation that lived for liner notes and seeing who did what. Um, our next guest name should ring familiar to hip hop heads because she was literally president of one of the most powerful labels of the genre. And I don't even want to limit it to hip hop because, you know, I mean, Tommy Boy had hits from club hits to 
pop music to freestyle to I can name them all. De La Soul, Coolio, Digital Underground, Force MDs, House of Pain, Club Nouveau, K7, LFO, uh, Information Society, Naughty by Nature, The RZA, back when he was Prince, Prince Rakim, Rakim. Uh, RuPaul, Queen Latifah, the original hip-hop band, Stetsasonic. Um, y'all, y'all really have to understand that uh, the muscle that this label operated with probably the the only other rival label that can even say that they held that same space was probably Def Jam. So, ladies and gentlemen, the very legendary president or former president Tommy Boy, uh, the one and only Monica Lynch on Questlove Supreme. Thank you. How are you, Monica? I'm doing great. And I really appreciated the conversation about gas prices because... Now that I'm 65, gas price means a whole different thing. Um, <laughs> I, I've never driven. I don't drive. I just got a metro car. Oh, you're card. a real New Yorker? So say, what's the gas situation? I'm like, ooh, let me look in my medicine cabinet. <laughs> <It's a whole laughs> I'm talking about gas. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Wait, so, you're, you're, you're telling me you never had your license or you never owned a car? I have my license, but I only Phew. use it for ID. And the only car I ever drove was a gold Cadillac with power windows that my father owned back in like the early seventies. So the die was cast at a young age. So yeah. this is definitely going to lead to my first question. What part? Uh, well, I, I don't know. Were you a natural born New, York, New Yorker or no, Chicago. Chicago? You can hear You're from it. You can Chicago. Hear it. Okay. Yeah, Chicago. I'm sixty five. I'm from Chicago. Grew up there. Yeah, well, you know, I grew up there and I was, you know, really weaned on Top 40 radio when it was still a hugely amazing thing in the late 60s. Heard all the great, great pop songs from that era. And uh, back then, you know, blues was definitely still a big thing in Chicago, but it was mostly, I would say, a lot of white guys. They were checking the blues back in in that scene, you know, Paul Butterfield Blues Band. The Electric Blues. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And then I sort of got into the the disco scene. I was a big disco dancer, hustle contests, was a a dancer at the biggest gay bar in Chicago, which is sort of like a, it was the Studio 54 of Chicago. Then I was in a punk band and we worked at a punk club and did all sorts of things before I came to New York in 1978. So um, you got history. What was your first musical memory? My first musical memory was listening to my parents' records uh, in the basement. Um, Mm -hmm. And they, of course, had the sort of records that you would find in the 60s in a lot of collections. It was everything from Nichols and May to My Fair Lady soundtrack to, uh, you know, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, that sort of thing. I had a big crush on Herb Alpert back then. And I got my first record player uh, the same year that Rubber Soul came out, that was the first record I ever owned was Rubber Soul. That would be 65? Uh, no, I think it was a little earlier. I think, well, yeah, maybe 64, 65 was Rubber Soul, I think. Yeah. Okay. Wow, that's cool. So would you, like, did you have any ambitions or goals to be in the music industry or did it sort of find you as you became an adult? I had no ambitions, no goals. Um, I just loved music. I was like 
the, I used to buy 45s all the time. I don't know if you remember that there was something called the phonolog, this huge, like, yellow paperback compendium that you could go and do special orders of 45s at record stores back then. Do you remember that? Well, yeah, when I shop at specialty stores now, they it looks like the yellow pages. Like, it's just a, a yes. master list, so... If uh, what was the spot we used to shop at in Philly, Steve? Val, Sh- yeah, Val, Val Shively, Val Shively, yeah. Val Shively. Mm-hmm. yeah. So like, you go to Val Shively, and you know, next to uh, Jerry's. Oh, rest in peace to Jerry's, who just passed away like a month ago, or whatever. Like those uh, specialty record stores, like record stores that have over one hundred thousand records in stock, they still have those books there. So. You didn't work at a record store, so how would you get access to those records? Or how would you get access to that book? Well, I was always listening to the top 40 stations in Chicago, WLS and WCFL. And I would go down to the uh, Marina City, those two buildings that look like corn cobs in Chicago. And that's where WLS was. And I was a kid. I would just take the L train down there. And you could stand in the lobby and watch the DJ on the air. And they would have these little surveys that Mm -hmm. uh, they would give you of the top 40 records for the week. I know this is really kind of going back like a rocker, but I figure you probably no. Literally, the show is based on long-winded rabbit hole. (laughs) The the whole point is to get me to not talk. So, (laughs) good. Well, so anyway, so I I started, you know, really saying, oh, I want to special order these records because I can't find them at EJ Corvettes or Montgomery Wards or something. Right. And so back then, as you know, there were always like these great independently owned record stores and you could go there. And if you struck up a good relationship with the owner or a clerk, it was a tremendous source of knowledge that was passed along and you could special order these things and just basically loiter in the store and mm. learn a lot. And that is, in fact, you know, we could talk about that in the hip hop era as being a big thing here in New York uh, and other places. But no, I came here, you know, I always say I came here with, a, you know, on a dollar and a dream. No plans except to go to Studio 54. And I landed in New York during the time when it was sort of like the, uh, the perfect nexus of punk and disco and no wave was uh, happening and sort of the downtown art scene and all that stuff that people lionize so much. But it was a great time to be in New York because it really was cheap. And um, I lived on St. Mark's Place between 2nd and 3rd, which was basically like the main runway for, (laughs) you know, people would get up at 2, 3 in the afternoon and then sit out on the stoop to watch so-and-so. Uh, you know, Richard Hell come down the street to cop his dope or whatever. You know, right. it was, and I wouldn't say it except that I was going to say here. it's not ginger. Like now, it's expensive property, but back then, it was it cheap. was something to behold. And yeah, and there was this woman named Anya Phillips who was sort of the one of the co-founders of the Mud Club, and she was really sort of a downtown doyen. She was the girlfriend of of. James White or James Chance, you know, contortions. And Mm -hmm. she uh, sat me down one day. She was very stern, sort of in a dominatrix sort of way. She said, you're going to be a a topless dancer and I'm going to make G-strings for you because I had no money. 
And so I said, okay, sounds like a plan. <laughs> and I went to this place called the Go-Go Agency. And I've recounted this tale many times, but there was a guy there named Johnny. And it was like a scene out of Broadway, Danny Rose. And you walk up the stairs in this midtown building and there's these big boards and it lists all the topless bars in all five boroughs. And he would assign you, you know. He was an agent? He was an agent. Yeah. And so he would send me out to places in Queens, like the Carousel or this place up in the Bronx called The Slice. Or um, there was a place over uh, in the uh, meatpacking district when it was still a meatpacking district that right. he'd work. He'd do these, and a lot of stuff in Midtown. Because you get a lot, had a lot of customers in Midtown back then, but um, but yeah, it was. Wait, I gotta ask. So I, I, you know, I my my era of, I, I say I'm part of the the Def Leppard generation where there's no time where I've not entered a strip club where they force you to listen to Pour Some Sugar on Me, <laughs> <laughs> except for Atlanta, except for Atlanta, but back then. <laughs> Like, would you have to feed the 45 jukebox or was there or was it like it is now? Like, welcome to the stage. No, no, no. Uh, I wish I had an MC welcoming to the stage. It wasn't (laughs) quite that grand. Okay. Um, I was going to ask if you had a a nom nom de plume. Did you you have a? uh, Yes. A title. What was your name? It was Mistress Monique. And... um, (laughs) (laughs) but this was all sort of in the late 70s you know so the type of records that you were hearing i mean if i hear you know ring my bell one more time it's that was sort of like that was your pour some sugar on me (laughs) it was it was the pour some sugar of me of 1978 79 yeah totally um you know uh, but if it was disco, you know, because it was sort of it was sort of like when disco it kind of peaked, and it was much more like uh, these mechanical type of records. Which not that I'm mad at that, but it was those type of records. Ring my bell seems to be the one that always comes back to me in my dreams. But um, <laughs> yeah, I worked at a had ex, what I call extended residencies at uh, Show World, which uh, you might be might remember that. Uh, and Peepland, which was also a big player on the on the deuce back then, um, okay. but yeah, it was um, steady money, um, good money. I made cleared fifteen hundred dollars a week at the peak. Okay, I gotta ask a question. So, is this all right? You you remember how uh, it wasn't Papa Don't Preach? Like, open your heart. Was it like you sat in a booth and you inserted a coin and the thing went up and yes. you? Yeah. Yes. Does that type of strip club yes. still exist, cut. or is that like a thing of the past now? It's called OnlyFans. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Yo, it is. It is. That everybody's on a promo. No, we need yeah. somewhere. Like <laughs> oh man, no. It was like, hey, these OnlyFans chicks. Fonte. I think they're pretty smart. They're much more entrepreneurial. I mean, back then, I got hired at a, well, like say for example, at Show World. My boss's name was a woman named Thunder. And she had huge red hair. She was like Bensonhurst type of gal. And the place was owned by a guy who died recently, but it was all mob owned. It was, um, oh, who is, there was one of the big mob characters that, uh, Frankie the Horse Ionello. That was the guy who ran the whole, oh. all that If he's business. named after an animal, then you know that's bad. That's right. That's right. So, you know, they paid you a flat fee, but you made your money. You really made your money. 
by getting these guys to keep putting the coins in and keep the window going up. So I would sit on one side and then there'd be the, the curtain, the metal curtain, and the guys would be on the other side. And a lot of, we had a lot of Hasidic customers. Um, <laughs> Man, well, what a sham that whole thing is. Let's get into it. Let's talk about it, Monica. But, you know, it's because it's such a repressed, sexually repressed culture. I think you'd get a lot uh, in, in the peep shows. All right, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. Yeah, go there. Um, what happens on the guy's side of the booth, though? Like, well, is, is there a cleanup afterwards? What? Like, is... Oh, yes. There is mop patrol. Yeah, isn't this the jizz mopper? Isn't this where this like first yes. came around? Uh, yeah. That's right. If wow. When you walk into the place, you give them cash, and they give you these tokens. And the tokens are what allows you to go to the booth or to watch a peep movie or things like that. Um, there were, they also had live sex shows at show world. I, I didn't, uh, do that there, Damn. but they had, um, but yeah, the idea was to keep them putting the money in. So these were, these were skills I was able to apply to the Bear. music industry. Not too long afterwards. You, some- you said you didn't do the, the live sex show there. Did you do it somewhere else? Is it, is it, yo, <laughs> leave it alone. You have to, you'll have to ask me back as a guest for me to answer the second part of that question. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I hear longtime New York residents like begging for the time when old New York returns. Is this what they're talking about? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of romanticizing about dirty New York of the 70s. I mean, literally, the, the, the summer I got there is when they uh, let out a lot of people with mental health issues onto the street. They just dumped them on the street. There was a huge garbage strike. There had been a big blackout in 1977, as the tramps <laughs> told us about. Right. Um, and there was, uh, you know... Uh, it was it was definitely grungy and dirty, and people like to say, "Oh, wasn't it great back then?" Because it attracted all these, you know, creative people and blah blah blah. Uh, but I don't really get all. I mean, I like to recount the stories about that, but I wouldn't want it to go back to that uh, necessarily. So um, you like post ninety four Disney Giuliani era a little better? <laughs> oh no, I didn't say that no. either. <laughs> no, no. I think I've shared this on the show once before. Like the first day that we arrived in New York, when the Roots like really first came to New York to start mixing, do you want more? I believe like in December of '93 was pretty much like I think the day that whatever I okay I, maybe I've been on Forty Second Street once or twice in my life. Like I know we went to go see the Wiz, but I don't remember that much at the age of seven. But you know I do remember us going on 42nd street near our hotel and like rich, like my manager whatnot being really disappointed that 42nd streets disnified and not the CD, you know, New York that he remembers. And I remember like people telling us like that week is when the transformation started and everybody was pissed at it. So. Hey, it's nice to be able to be old enough to to look back at it and to remember it as it was back then, but I'm not wow. getting all tears in my beer over, you know, hey. That's perfect. Wish it was back, you know. So club-wise, you know, I've been trying to get another downtown New York diva that made a uh, a billion-dollar career for herself on this show, but that hasn't happened yet. So I guess you are really our first witness to that era. Can you, assuming that by this time you're watching hip-hop culture creep into downtown, first of all, like, did you go north of the Bronx to any of the, what was known as the classic eras of hip-hop, like uh, whatever, the Fever or any of those clubs way north? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd been to the uh, Fever, of course. I know Sal from back then. Um, T Connection. Um, actually, you know, a funny thing was I ended up uh, bringing Martin Scorsese to the T Connection one night to hear Bambada play. Um, and that was sort of a, an odd set of circumstances. But, uh, you know, really? so, yeah, he, he knew the You guys describe that. What well, were they? He, Wait, he, what era of. Raging Bull, King of Comedy, what era do you... This would have been circa 82, 83, so you tell me. King of Comedy, all right. Yeah, and um, he was friends with this guy named Jay Cox, who was a film at, uh, film critic at Time Magazine, who was related to Tom Silverman. And somehow there was a conversation, oh, Marty would really love to go up and check out this hip-hop thing and blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, I was like hey, be happy to show him, you know, take him up there. And so there was a car service, which back then, you know, was a rare thing for me right. to be, have any car service or anything. But we went up to T-Connection. He was pretty quiet, you know. Uh, I think he was just 
checking it out, observing. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Time Magazine ended up doing a big story about sort of the emerging hip hop scene back then. But, um, but yeah, I used to go to uh, some of the places uptown, but more frequently I would go to every Friday night. I was, I would, we went to Negril when that was having when Cool Lady Blue, you know, had started doing her nights at Negril. And then I would always go to um, the Roxy on Friday night. And then following the Roxy, I would head up a few blocks and go to um, the Fun House. I was very friendly with Jellybean and would hang out with him a lot. Benitez, okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. So those, and then the dance, of course, Danceteria was a really great place uh, mm. to hang out at. And, and you know, before that, it was like Studio 54 and the Mud Club were, were staples for me. But, you know, but yeah, uh, Union Squares uh, was uh, a place I went to a lot. And uh, Amazon Hotel that was a big place. Um, Patrick Moxie had Payday. I don't know if okay. you remember yeah, that Yeah, Gangstar. One. Oh, yeah, totally. That was a big one. De La Soul did a, a big premiere uh, performance there. And um, I didn't really hang out at Latin Quarters that much. I left that to Dante. And so, but, uh, right. but, yeah, those were, the, those were the big clubs that were sort of happening back then. Yeah. The, the lure of the – or the uh... – yeah, the folklore of Studio 54, like, assuming that it, it really started to rise in 77, when when did it peak? Even though I've heard Studio 54 stories, like, in 81, 82, 83, 84, like, in the half, first half of the 80s, like, when did the allure of Studio 54 die down? And when did it become, was it ever uncool to go there? Yes, it was uncool to go there after it closed and then it reopened. Um, I would say it peaked in 79. It burned fast and hard and it extinguished pretty quickly. I think that, but it, you know, this, I'd say by 80, you know. So were you, the, have you ever went there at its peak when like. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Even no, she I, couldn't get in, even though they had the, like the number one song on the charts. Like. Oh yeah. No, I, I literally, you know, laughed that I, you know, the, that I landed at LaGuardia airport and proceeded straight to studio 54, but that it, it's not. It's an exaggeration, but literally, I was like a homing pigeon. I have to go to my spiritual home of Studio 54. And, you know, back then, so this is in April of 78. And okay. back, back then, you know, you had all the, you know, Diane Van Furstenberg and Warhol and Liza and all these people, you know, it was razzle-dazzle. Uh, but there was always this, uh, they always let in a group of, young kids that if you were dressed interestingly enough and added youthful flavor to the crowd, you'd stand outside for a little while. Uh, and Mark Benneke, who was the doorman, who would stand on this perch in a huge Norma Kamali uh, red cocoon coat, would, you know, sort of look around and act like, you know, he'd suss out the crowd. Mm-hmm. I always had a, a, a strategy, though. My strategy was to take the subway up to as close as a possible to 54 and 8th and then take a cab from the corner to directly in front of Studio 54, which could take anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes because the street was already pa- always packed. Right. But the trick was that split second when the cab door opens, Mark Benneke is always looking to see who's getting out of cars because it could be Truman Capote. You know, so. Oh, wow. <laughs> 
but he would at least register you. So, you know, I'd spend whatever, 75 cents on the subway, another maybe four bucks, just going half a block in a taxi to make sure to get in. See, now Roger should have learned that lesson. Yes. He he should have also (laughs) been white, but, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, listen, there's no question about that. But, yeah, no, it was not a democracy. It was uh, far from it. So, yeah, 79 was the peak. (laughs) 78 maybe. So once that peaks, are you – would you say that Paradise Garage replaced it? Or then what was your – like what replaced Studio 54 as, okay, that's not cool no more. Let's go to this spot. You know what? It wasn't an either or. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on at the simultaneously. There was a place called Haraz that was very popular. Uh, there was a place called the Continental Bath. I mean, not the Continental Bath. That's another place. Uh, the Continental Club. There was Danceteria. There was the Mud Club. There was a, a CBGB's was still you know, it was very big still back then. And then there was, of course, places like Xenon, which was sort of like the poor relation to Studio 54. You know, if you couldn't get into Studio 54, you would go to Xenon. And then there was also, um, oh, what's that sex club? Oh, um, what's that sex club that everyone went to that, uh, the Swingers Club, I I forget the name of it. It was very popular. Hey, son, (laughs) You know what? It's, it's escaping my mind right now. Like, yeah, damn. So, you it know, eluded him. This is why we have guests on the show. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I was going up there, but at this rate, I was doing all these doo-wop shows. Like, I didn't see this part of New York. Well, you know, Amir, you you certainly have um, Vince Aletti's, uh Disco Files yes. book. Yes, I think the Disco Files book is a really great lay of the land okay. for the clubs that were happening and when they were happening, because it didn't just like jump from Studio 54 to say Paradise Garage and Paradise Garage was such a different. There might have been some overlap, but it was a very different vibe, very different crowd. I was not a member of, of um, Paradise Garage. I did go there on many occasions, but you had to, I, it was, <laughs> had to reach out to the guy. Um, was it Richard Brody, I think, was the name of the guy that owned the club and get, right. get on the guest list for the night and all oh, It was too hard to get it. Okay. Well, you had to be a member, you, you know, it was a membership club. Question. Uh, before your record label days, were you seeing any bands or artists like perform in clubs or were you strictly just like a club kid listening to DJs? You know, I was actually more interested in the DJs to tell you the truth. Um, And I still am. Um, The, I mean, yeah, I see these shows and everything, but I, I didn't have, I never had the same fervor about seeing live concerts except for Roxy music. And I'm a rock. Total Roxy music geek fan, love Brian Ferry, like going back to mid seventies. But I, so that was, uh, oh, and I was also loved to go see Bowie and uh, LaBelle. LaBelle was a definitely appointment. You know, that was like a big deal to go to LaBelle shows back in the seventies. But were you there for their infamous, uh, where I think they did something at the Lincoln Center where everyone had to wear something silver in the audience? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Yes. That was um, the um, Chameleon Tour, uh, I yes. believe. 
Uh-huh. Yes, and uh, with all the costumes that were by uh, Larry Legaspi, uh, the late yeah. Larry Legaspi, who's mm-hmm. being, um, there's a big book uh, that um, uh, Rick Owens is doing, a uh, tribute to Larry Legaspi. But this was in, I believe, 76, because I think okay. after the Chameleon tour, they kind of broke up, if I'm they not mistaken. They broke up, yeah. Yeah, but every, I was in Chicago, and me and all my friends, I was hanging out with this huge gay, glammy crowd, and we all dressed as reptiles to go to the um, LaBelle concert, and I dressed in this green sequined uh, lizard outfit that I put together, and actually, and all my friends did, I still have photos of it, and I was invited to go up on stage and dance with Nona and Sarah. And I have the photos of it. To, to, I have the receipts. But it was it was incredible. I mean, this this is when the audience was really at one with uh, LaBelle. And, and, you know, people felt that way, too, about going to Bowie and, and, and Roxy Music. Everyone wanted to dress as glamorously as Brian Ferry, you know. So, um, but... But I'm not going to be that. I'm not that person to say, oh, yeah, I was at such and such, you know, concert or anything like that. Uh, okay. So for you, did you know an immediate sonic difference when you were frequenting clubs that were more hip hop based? And, and I, I mean, way before there were rap labels or even before your time at your tenure at, at a Tommy Boy. Like if you're seeing... Like, do you remember your first rap club experience pre your record label days? Hmm. No, I don't. Because okay. I think I started, I think probably the first club that I recall going to was probably Negril. So it's not like I was, oh, yeah, man, I was at Harlem World in 79 and blah, blah. No, it wasn't like that. Okay. Um, I was but still, wait, is this the Negril that's on 23rd Street? Uh, Negril, I think, was down on like 2nd Avenue around maybe 3rd or 4th, 6th Street. Lady Blue. Uh, Freddie was very involved in sort of helping, you know, coalesce the uptown, downtown scenes together. Um, you know, Bam was uh, DJing there. And I think. I think Rocksteady performed there. It was, it was like a small sort of cramped basement space. It was really, you know, um, not like a the APT. Place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I get it. Now, when people mention the grill, of course, me being an entry in the the nineties, I'm thinking of the upscale Jamaican restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> thinking that maybe it was once a hip hop club, like in the eighties or whatever. But I'm realizing that I got fooled. So can you tell me how you got pulled into the record industry? Uh, well, I was waiting. Ta- I had left my my thriving career at Show World and Peep Land. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I made this, you know, incredibly brilliant determination that the people who I was, you know, the people I was working with, the people I was working for and the customers were all pretty much a dead end. Um, and and I wasn't and I wasn't getting any younger. So. I started waiting tables, ended up um, working graveyard at a place called uh, the Empire Diner. Mm-hmm. Um, I was living in the Chelsea Hotel. So it's, it's like all the bona fides for like, yeah, 
she checks all the boxers, sort of late seventies, <laughs> early eighties. Um, right. And, uh, but because I had always been such a music fan and I was always like, what's that you're playing? What's that you're playing? You know, but you know, I loved it. I just, I uh, decided to go to this. I heard about something called the new music seminar and it was the first conference that Tom Silverman put together with uh, his two partners, Mark Josephson and uh, I'm not even sure Joel Weber was part of it at that point, but it was in a small, it was in recording studio uh, up in Yorkville. And this was probably uh, 1980 or 81. Okay. Right. So, and I, you know, met Tom at a pizza place during a break. I said, hey, I, I'm Monica, you know, okay, whatever. And then uh, a guy named Bob Pittman was speaking at this conference and he started, he announced that they, there was a new, new thing that they were about to launch called MTV. And I approached Mm -hmm. him afterwards. I said, Oh man, this sounds great. I would love to work for you. He, you know, completely ignored me and about a year. So I just kept waiting tables. And then about a year later, I saw an ad for a guy, gal Friday in the village voice. This is back when people, there were no, there was no LinkedIn. Um, right. <laughs> you had to buy a Village Voice to get a job. You had to buy the Village Voice or the New York Times, you know, and you and the Sunday New York Times, you know, and go through all these little, you know, mouse type uh, listings. And I saw an ad for a guy gal Friday for a, a, um, a dance music. I think it was a mu- dance music publication slash record company. I still have the ad. I still have it on. You saved little- it. Oh, yeah, a little yellow piece of paper that I cut out. Yeah, I, I have it in an envelope. And um, and I called the number, and it was Tom. And he didn't remember me, but um, I remembered him. And he told me, yeah, you know, uh, dance music. I have dance music report. I just started this label called Tommy Boy. And, you know, this would be to be like my right-hand person, blah, blah, blah. And uh, there were at this point, I was actually living in servants' quarters up on Upper West Side. I was bouncing around a lot of places. That's a uh, always the top floor of a. That's right. I I, I was Very seconds. Good. I was seconds. Houses. I was seconds away from buying uh, a five-story house in Harlem, uh, in the Heights. Before, after Hamilton, then the the prices really jacked up. It was like Hamilton's Row. And it looked as large as like the Huxtables crib in Brooklyn. But, you know, the basement was tricked out the first floor. Then they had the second floor, third floor, fourth floor. And then on the fifth floor, that's usually where the maid or the nanny, you know, these houses are also hundreds of years old. So you imagine that's where, yeah, the help. (laughs) So that kept your legs, that at least kept your legs in in shape because you'd have to go up five flights of stairs. Yes. For these tiny little rooms, it wasn't, you know, shared bathrooms, whatever. It was, it was fine. It was like maybe 50, 75 bucks a week or something. But I had these numerous phone calls with Tom trying to convince him why he should hire me because I didn't have a college education. He did. He's like, well, where, you know, what have you done before? And like, well, you know, I worked at Peepland and uh, this was, you know, this ah. is, you know, and he wasn't thoroughly convinced, but then once he he said, "Well, okay, listen, tomorrow I'm going out to uh, pick up the 12 inches of the new Tommy Boy release, and you can come, you can ride along with me." So I'm like, "Okay, cool, this is my shot." And uh, so I meet up with him. He lives in this uh, 
two-bedroom apartment over in Yorkville. Let's face it, the heart of Chicago. that? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> ah. it's the Upper East Side on the Far East Side. You know where the mayor's home is? Yeah. That's like York oh, Street, yes. where York Street starts. Yes, York Avenue. Right, exactly. Okay. It's, uh, you know, so we d- drive out to Long Island City in his hatchback. I don't know if that's a thing, if they even make hatchbacks anymore. But it was we drove out there in his hatchback to this uh, pressing plant called Apexton. And it was owned by these two Polish brothers. And um, and so what they do is when, you know, when Tom had ordered a pressing of, I don't know, a thousand or whatever of this record, they they wheel them out to the curb in 50 count boxes. And, you know, Tom opens up the back of the hatchback and I start slinging in these 50 count boxes. And I'm a girl from Chicago, man. It's like I'm 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 big girl from Chicago. I have no problem lifting up heavy shit and slinging it. So he was like, oh, she got some muscle on her. All right. You got the job. (laughs) So so that's how I started. But I had to keep waiting on tables when I started because I couldn't afford, you know, the the pay wasn't a whole lot. So I was working tables at night and working for Tom during the day. So what year was this? Uh, Or is this after Planet Rock or like what year? Oh, no, no. Before. Uh, December of 81. I was the first employee. Your memory is incredible, Monica Lynch. I can't even. Your memory is unbelievable. I love this. This tells me that you didn't do much drugs in the eighties, because. Oh no, that's not true either. You take Never that. mind. <laughs> Usually, our guests are like, "Hey, man, I, I, I don't remember selective memory." <laughs> what? Well, you know how it is. You have selective memory about certain things. If you ask me other things, I'll say I, I can't remember. But this so, stuff, I do remember. So was this the jazzy J like funky sensation era of? Yes. Okay. In fact, it was. That's right. That's what it was like. Exactly. That was when I started in, de- in December of 1981. Tom, actually, about a week after I started, went away for a couple of weeks to Jamaica for a, uh, an extended vacation with his girlfriend. And um, Jazzy Sensation had just come out. Right. And, and so... You know, um, my duties were split between Tommy Boy, this fledgling label Tommy Boy, and Dance Music Report, which was a, a, which was a disco DJ tip sheet, um, which I don't know if you remember that, but it was um, an important publication in its time. So he he went on vacation and left me with, you know, my sort of semi-defined duties and one of them was, you know, to make sure to, you know, take the orders uh, for Jazzy Sensation and, you know, make sure the pressing plant has got the records going and all this other stuff. Well, sure enough, I took an order from a one-stop. I don't know if you know what a one-stop is. I this know what a one-stop yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. Okay, yes, sort of a subcategory of an independent distributor. Distributor, so, yeah. Um, and it was an, an account that we didn't ha- weren't open with. And so I took an order and then come to find out that it was some guy who was a Ghanif and wasn't going to be paying us. And Tom totally like reamed me about that. But you when know. you say a Ghanif, you mean like some friends of ours, some or- friends of ours. Well, I just bought a, a hardcover copy of The Joys of Yiddish for a friend of mine today. Because okay. when you say, because I, I said to her, I said, oh, you know, this person, blah, 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 they're great, but they have no Rukmanis. And she's, what's Rukmanis? I'm like, 
if you've never worked in the music industry, you don't know what Ganef or Rachmanis is or, you know, Zuris right. or this. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it basically meant the guy wasn't, he was sort of a thief, wasn't planning on paying us. In my mind, the difference between Tommy Boy and, well, I'm saying the hip hop labels that came before it, because really we're talking Sugar Hill, is what I feel is notable about those two labels is that, you know, within Joy and Sugar Hill, I definitely know that, you know, Morris Levy had his hands or, quote, Morris Levy types, more gangster run era of the music industry. How is one able to start a label, an independent label, in the early 80s without someone trying to muscle you for a piece? Now, even though, okay, so Jazzy Sensation wasn't exactly planet rock but uh, for our listeners that are are peeping jazzy sensation is a uh, a hip-hop rendition of gwen mccray's uh sort of timeless uh, can you feel it can you feel mm. it our uh, sensation our jazzy sensation like sensation yeah right so like are you aware of the strong arm of the connected folks that sugar hill and enjoy records definitely were uh, you, you know, that's a good question. Um, the, Sugar Hill was definitely, you know, Joe and Sylvia. And um, there was a guy named Malden who was sort of the other co-founder of Sugar Hill. Michael Malden? No, no, not Michael Malden. I, I, say, I, him, I was like, ooh, okay. Whew. No, this guy was Yugoslavian. He was uh, p- sort of put in there by Morris Levy to, you know, make sure the money situation was whatever it was going to be. And, uh, but, but I would say that there, it was a very much a entrepreneurial cottage industry at that point, you know, and I think enjoy records, Bobby Robinson's label is more, uh, in that vein, but you, what you also had, and I, I, I just have to give a shout out to Corey Robbins because, um, Corey, yes, co-founder of, of, of Profile Records. Corey actually came to the office when Tom was away, and he just knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm Corey, you know, I have Profile Records. If, any, if you need anything, if anything goes wrong, you have any questions, please feel free to, to get in touch with me. It's like, wow, thank you. I appreciate it because I did have a lot of questions. But there, was this, there were labels that were really the the – you know, dance, the post disco dance labels like West End and Prelude, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. who there, it wasn't so much about some sort of cultural bubbling up. It was more about what was selling. Okay, sell sells over or peaked mm-hmm. or whatever. So maybe it's, you know, Tanya Gardner or, uh, you know, uh, something Boys. that's. Yeah. Right, exactly. Things that are bubbling up that are more from the street and, and including hip hop. Uh, but it was more of a commercial imperative, uh, okay. I think, than an artistic decision or a cultural reflection so much. And I think the same thing is absolutely true with Sugar Hill and Enjoy. I mean, you've got, you know, Bobby Robinson and Joe and Sylvia. I mean, look at their histories with right. the labels that they had. So I think that they were all, these were independent labels were owned by people who were looking around the landscape and saying, where can I make money next? All right, y'all. 
You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, so if you're doing Jazzy Sensation, uh, assuming that you were there for its very first order, how many pieces are you ordering? And how many, like, just walk me through how does one spread it? So... How many go to DJs so they can get played? Are you hoping that Frankie Crocker plays it so that it might go national? And then if it does, well, in other words, the the problem that was presented in Crush Groove, which I forget what single it was, like they had a single so successful that they didn't have enough money to oh, print it. Yes, and then yes, yes. What the, the, yeah, the worst thing that could happen to you is a hit, like the producers. You know, um, <laughs> okay, so let's... Uh, I, even though I want you to lead up to Planet Rock, I'm certain that that was a problem for you guys because that was a worldwide smash. So how do you operate and service the world? And how do you know what the world wants? How do you know what a local record store in Germany wants? How do you know if Dr. Dre or Uncle Jam is playing it in L.A.? Like, how, how do you spread the word? Like, who's the person that you're trying to get this record to, hoping that it will become a thing? Well... Listen, back then, it was a very small network. And, um, and when Jazzy Sensation was out, I mean, I, w- I would always tell people, you know, Jazzy Sensation really was a, what I would call a regional record. Right. Um, it was popular in the mid-Atlantic area. Um, Tommy Boy certainly didn't have the, we had not set up sort of an, a national network, which may or may not have even been. Uh, you know, might have made a difference. I don't know. But the thing is, is that 
back then there was such a small number of people to even go to. You know, we uh, were dealing directly with Magic when he was still on HBI. Oh, wow. Um, you know, Islam had Zulu Beats, uh, Supreme Team. There was, I mean, this is before Red was on Kiss. I mean, there was, you know, a lot of this was through club DJs. And, uh, and to some degree, these sort of specialty mix shows that were starting to emerge, some of them on college college and university stations. But right. at that point, I know you were talking 1982. It was mm-hmm. a, it's a short window, really, between Jazzy Sensation and Planet Rock. Because Planet Rock came out, I think it was April of 82. Okay. Um, so it's a really big difference. The, um, so you had uh, the independent record stores who, by the way, you know, I have had a recent conversation with someone uh, about this that, if, if there was ever a documentary that someone was going to consider doing, I think the history of independent record stores, black independent record stores and their role in hip hop and dance music is, is an untold story. But I would say the record stores played a big role in spreading the word and playing the records. The club DJs were more important at that point. Servicing record pools. I mean, we I still I forgot about these- record pools. OK. Yes, I still have lists of the record pools and the record pool directors, and we would keep a, a running or, you know running list of how many members do you have and who do you service and blah blah blah. So, how many accounts do you have to service? How many accounts cool. do you have to service for a record pool? Oh, back man. in eighty two. You know, some of these record pools might have like uh, the Sure Record Pool that was run by a guy named Bobby Davis up in the Bronx. Um, he'd say, oh, you know, 150 members, 200 members, or, you know, you'd have uh, maybe a Ricketts Records out in New Jersey, and they might have 75 members or some record pool out on Long Island or, you know, whatever it was. But, you know, the, the thing with the record pool directors is that they, were, they sort of were, had more, uh, more power then than they did in the, in the years to come. And right. The, well, you have to give us full service or nothing, even though I, I know it's about of, to happen. Yeah, a lot of their members would never touch a rap record. Okay, right. so they, they would were, just sell it. <laughs> so they would sell it, or you know, or it would just be like you know, go into the uh, you know the vinyl dump or whatever. But it was you know, so you so could spend, is, go ahead. Is that why sometimes when I get records, then they have that little. Uh, cut open hole on, on the top left corner is that to differentiate oh, yeah. a promotional record yeah, yeah. It, i always yeah, wanted to yeah. know what that was for yeah that's a yeah they were they were sort of notched a punch hole okay like a neutered cat you know you know it was a promo right. you know okay <laughs> but uh that didn't necessarily prevent something being resold but you know it only would resell if it was a hit who fucking cares if it's not a hit record you know right. um so you know, anyway, but it was a small world, you know, in New York, uh, you know, yeah, you'd want to make sure Shep Pettibone or Sergio Munzabai or the Latin Rascals on WKTU or uh, DJ um, Jose Animal Diaz. You know, you had um, Carlos de Jesus on WKTU, rest in peace. You right. had uh, uh, Barry Mayo and Tony Humphreys over Kiss. Wow. Barry Mayo, still friend, really uh, fantastic guy. 
Very so all, all these guys were DJs first before I got to know them as remixers and editors? Because you're mentioning well, Tony Humphreys and the Latin Rascals. And oh, yeah. So they were actual DJs first before. Oh, yeah. Tony Humphreys. Yeah. And um, uh, Chef Pettibone was very yeah. important. Uh, the master okay. mix on Kiss FM. You know, so. And, yeah, of course, Frankie was always at the top of the, you know, top of the food chain, you know. Right. Like, if you can get <laughs> Frankie to play a record, you know. Um, and Frankie was someone who, I, I mean, I knew him and uh, counted him as a friend, as as many did. Um, but, uh, and he was always very uh, interested in what was coming up from the street. He, you, you see all these photos of him hanging in the booth at Paradise Garage or whatever. He didn't want to be left behind on any of this stuff. But it was... Uh, you know, so he's the original human Shazam, looking over his shoulders, trying to copy what was. He wanted. To, he was very savvy about knowing what was coming up. He that was. He had to do that, and he did it so successfully for so many years. Um, but you know, Frankie was Frankie, and he was very. Uh, you know, you had to deal with Frankie. Like you know, he was royalty. New York, he was radio royalty. You know. So, in order to. Are you allowed to speak of the methods of how you were able to get a record played? I would like to think, I mean, I would like to think that a song like Planet Rock was so futuristic that DJs would naturally be like, yo, I got to play this shit. But for an album like that, did you have to ensure ways like how were rap records broken in markets that were unpenetrable, but you managed to get them on anyway? Well, that's a that's another good question. Um, the answer is yes. We had to take care of business, and okay. uh, I want to mention, by the way, since Philly looms so large here, that there was a really great um, remembrance of a guy named Snooky Jones in Philadelphia who passed away recently. He was a record promoter, and there was a he there was a great remembrance of the scene in the uh, WDAS parking lot where Butterball Tamburo of course, mm-hmm. Reign Supreme. I love Butterball. And how all the po- promo guys would pull up on, I forget what record day was there. I don't know what record day was. Uh, but let's say it was Monday. It doesn't matter. They, 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 you know, they all be there in the parking lot, jammed up, waiting for Butter to, you know, alight from his uh, car and get at him about whatever their releases were. But the answer, the short answer is yes, it doesn't. Listen, if it was a hit, you definitely had to pay. And if it wasn't a hit, you could waste a lot of money, but and people are happy to take your money, but that doesn't mean you're going to get any airplay. So wait, um, time out. You mean if it was a hit as in if it sounded good and you felt it deserved to be on the radio, then you determine this is going to be a hit? Yeah, sure. There's, okay. the, there's, there's things that deserve a lot of things, but there's... Um, but you still had to pay to play. If you want to, there's one thing to get play on a mix show or even play, or as they used to say, daytime, you know, like back then it was like, yeah, but you didn't get daytime, you know? Um, But if you wanted that official ad Mm -hmm. that's getting reported to billboard and R and R and whatever the other Bibles were at that point, you had to take care of business. And we did. How nightmarish was the Planet Rock experience? Well, I would say it was less... In in terms of demand, in terms of demand. Well, it was an immediate hit. 
And it was something that, you know, of course, we weren't necessarily prepared for, but you, you do everything you can. And what we would do is essentially uh, get try and get advance payments from distributors in exchange for a discounted rate on, on, on the units. You know what I'm saying? So if somebody said, yeah, we'll pay you uh, whatever, say $25,000 or, you know, whatever, you know, if we pay you up front, can you give us this many units at this price as opposed to what the uh, regular price was? So those are the type of things we had to do to make sure that we kept the pressing plant, you know, we were able to pay for the pressing and, and all the other, you know, jackets, labels, all, all the other stuff, shipping, you know, all that stuff. Well, hopefully by this point, you guys ramped up to more than just a two-person operation, correct? Yeah. Well, that record allowed Tommy Boy to ramp up to more than a two-person operation. You know, it literally exploded. It created opportunities and marketplaces that we didn't have at that point because that was, cause this record did go national and it went global. Um, and it was the type of record, uh, it's been recounted many times, of course, but it was the type of record that really traveled exceptionally well. It was a car record, you know, it had that percolating melodic sound. So automatically, you know, California, Florida, Texas, Detroit, Detroit, you know, uh, all these places that were not necessarily hip hop markets yet. Mm-hmm. Um, that really cracked the code, you know, in a lot of those places, that electro sound, Tommy boy's early days, the first wave of success that Tommy boy had was definitely with electro records. It was the, the Arthur Baker, John Roby productions with right. Sonic force planet patrol. And then of course we had Johnson crew with Michael Johnson yeah, yeah, and, and, you know, uh, there were that had some uh like space, space cowboy, cowboy. And, space yeah. cowboy was huge like in houston why well, that was big in in la when uh i visited family in pasadena in summer of 83 they were only playing the space cowboy and it was like yes. that's when i realized things were regional because i never heard it of the space cowboy it wasn't an east coast record well i knew about pack jam but i definitely didn't know yes. about space cowboy that's right that's wow. right that's right. Because that's, that's we, we were like, well, why is it big in Houston? And it was like, oh, because there's like a big, I guess, Nassar, <laughs> whatever was going on down there. There's a huge space thing in Houston. Oh, okay. So there was, so yeah. And some of these things were like that slower sound was sort of also, you know, like in the South and some mm-hmm. places. There were just these different vibes and cultural geographical differences that, you know, you could see with some of the records, but we had um, also Globe and Wizkid uh, play that beat and, you know, and with the uh, uh, Double right. D and Steinsky remix and right. uh, I'm probably overlooking some things, but there was, there was this brief window between say late 81 to into maybe 84 where we had this really dominant electro sound. And then I think once I heard, you know, <laughs> it's like, Oh shit! As soon as I heard Def, you know, Run DMC, I'm like, okay, sea change. Oh. <laughs> and you know, Keith LeBlanc, who I'm sure you know who he is, because yes, he's a fellow drummer. You know, he told me a story recently about how, as, as part of the Sugar Hill Band, 
Uh-huh. He remembered traveling with uh, Sugar Hill Gang and, you know, working in the studio there on all these records and all this stuff. And he said, yeah, you know, I remember one day waking up and hearing Planet Rock and saying, I think there's a sea change going on here, guys. <laughs> oh, because so, they did Scorpio. That's right. Yep. That's yep. right. You, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five did, well, really, Keith LeBlanc and, and uh, uh, Doug uh, and Skip. Yeah, yeah, Doug, Doug Wimbush and Skip did Scorpio. I get it. Yeah. So from the live thing into like this electro thing was a different thing. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you maintain the trust of, of Tom. Um, did you get immediately helmed president or were you head of A&R first? Or, I mean, was the position real or it was just a title for paper only? Look, I worked my fucking ass off. I did a lot of different things. Right. And no, no, no. I don't mean in a dismissive way, but I mean like, no, no, I did know you guys you have a real office and a, a receptionist and? Oh, <laughs> I know. Well, you know, back then it was like um, it was all these all the labels were just scrappy operations. I mean, we didn't have like any fanciness or nothing really. I want to tell you, we worked in the second bedroom out of Tom's apartment and then we moved into two different basement offices in yorkville <laughs> and then we moved in above the soccer store on first avenue in yorkville and sort of built it out there but it was never foursome d's made their entry in 85 and foursome d's i think at the time was way different than what you guys were normally associated with and i, I know tom's love and history of old school uh doo-wop music and you know, so basically, you know, what, what Boys to Men really pulled off successfully in 91, I mean, Foursome D's was that in yeah, terms the, of... the blueprint for that. You know, the thing is, is that the Foursome D's came to us actually through Mr. Magic. The Foursome D's had been on the scene for some time, which I didn't even realize at that point. As the Foursome C's, yeah. As the Foursome C's. And Tom loved doo-wop, and he sort of saw this hip-hop doo-wop group in the Force MDs. And the woman who was his uh, first wife, uh, her name was Robin Halpin, and she was a very, very talented jazz musician. And she actually uh, co-wrote and produced a lot of those early Force MDs records. You know, Let Me Love Let Me you. Love You. Oh, Itching man. for a Scratch. You know, th- let's not forget, they were in that first movie. Uh, was it Rappin'? Rappin'? Yeah, with the... <laughs> And, they were the best part the record, about it. Yeah, man. They did the record with the Fat Boys. Um, yeah. And, uh, Here I Go Again, all these really beautiful records. And But they were, the thing with the Force MDs, they were always pitted against New Edition. And New Edition was the group at that point that had the more of the female audience that was really sort of going crazy for them. But it was always the Force MDs and New Edition that were sort of going head to head in that early sort of boy group uh right. vocal hip hop you know r you know r&b thing but the thing the big turning point for the force mds and this is a story that i was very involved with was uh when crush group was being made um one of the producers was my boyfriend at the time his name is doug mchenry oh New Jack city yeah. doug New mchenry city. yeah yes yes oh word okay Yes. And Doug and I was staying with Doug at the Mayflower Hotel while they were ma- doing the film. Him and his par- his late partner, um, George Jackson, George, George Jackson, 
George. Wait, and- slight. Wait, can I can I insert one story only mere style? Um, you you remember the boom, the internet boom of like the early aughts when everyone thought the internet was going to be like this gold mine of a thing, same way that Bitcoin is now. And we struck a deal to sell OK Player in oh, yeah. 1999. Wow. And I believe we brokered a deal with George Jackson. And mm. the way that I was metaphorically burning cigars with $100 bills, like all y'all kissed my ass. Like I'm about <laughs> to be rich, rich, rich. And Monday, Richard calls me and says, deals off. I'm like, what happened? And he's like, George Jackson died. Anyway, I'm sorry, but yes, with, with George Jackson. Interjection is obviously the art of the of the game here. So, uh, but anyway, so I was, so I thought, you know, here I am. I'm with Doug. I'm dating Doug. It's like, you know, and he's like telling me, yeah, we're doing the soundtrack on Warner Brothers for Crush Cove and blah blah blah. And I'm like, awesome. Let me get a slot on there for the Force MGs. You know, he says, eh. You know, uh, but what? we got new edition, like, ah, uh, sorry. Yeah. You know, you're my girl oh. and everything. But like, so I'm like, so I'm like really well, mad. My secret, they did my, my secret in the movie. Yeah, it was my secret, yeah. So, mm. but here's what happens. So the Crush Groove soundtrack, the movie's getting wrapped up. The, the soundtrack, because, you know, lead times were crazy back then. They had to master the soundtrack. All this, uh, the deadlines were crazy. And then I get this call from Doug, and he's like, there was supposed to be this big ballad slot on the album. It was dedicated to New Edition. And mm-hmm. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were going to produce this song with New Edition. I'm like, fucking man. <laughs> and then he calls me, he goes, you're not going to believe it. New Edition had to pull out because some sort of crazy legal issue. They had a lot of problems back then, New Edition, with their management and lawsuits, all this shit was going on. So he goes, can you get Force MDs up to Minneapolis tomorrow? <laughs> like, and I'm like, yeah, what do we got to do? You know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> of course, it was not exactly the next day, but it was within a matter of two or three days. And it was like involved calls with Ron Sweeney and Jimmy and Terry and all this other stuff. And, and of course, the Force MDs and, their fa- and the, the father, who is a manager, uh, Bob Lundy, they get up there. They record this record called Tender Love. And it goes on the soundtrack at the very last minute. Whoa. And guess what? It's the first top 10 pop hit for Jimmy and Terry. And it was wow. the big lead. It was the, the big smash hit of the album. Right. And it was through that that Warner Brothers got interested in doing a deal with Tommy Boy. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. So you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? 
With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. At this place, are you shocked that even though, you know, Sylvie Robinson was running Sugar Hill Records or whatnot, were women in executive positions really not a thing and I'm 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 taking it out of hip hop, just general at labels. Like I know about Sylvia Roan, at least her, you know, coming up at 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 Atlantic and starting East West and whatnot. And maybe I mean Cassandra well, Mills was more at Casablanca before then. Well, okay. Well, I knew about Neil Bogart, but who was running? Who was at Casablanca? Well, I, I believe Sylvia had oh, started. That I did not know. Oh okay. wow! I, I didn't know so. that either. All right, we can fact check it. This is a great, great subject matter. I'm really happy you brought this up because, you know, um, there's a lot of women from that early 80s period who didn't necessarily get their shine or necessarily get titles. I was I think I was made president in 85. I still have the press release. And why do I have it? Because I had to write it. The, um, <laughs> it's, like, it's like writing your own Wikipedia entry. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, you're president. Now, could you go write this up? Yes. OK, fine. So the um, uh, but yeah, before in that early 80s period, I would say that the people that really come to my mind is like women who were doing a lot in the early hip hop labels would be Ann Carly at Jive Records. Mm, Jive, yeah, yeah. You know, who I actually knew Ann when she was working in the New York office of EG Records. I used to harass her for Roxy Music tour tickets. And then uh. Um, uh, there was uh, Janine LeClaire who was at um, Next Plateau Records that worked with Eddie yeah, O'Loughlin. Right. Yeah, that was something. There was um, D, D. Joseph, who worked with at um, Prism Records, which became, you know, which began Cold Chillin'. Cold Chillin'. Yeah. Uh, of course, there was Sylvia, um, and there were others, and, and I'm really sorry because I should have prepared a list for this because it, it is important, and there's a lot of people who, you know, it was a, a bit later in the 80s when there were more women who were getting into the business, but there were a lot of women who were in the business then, and they just didn't necessarily get as much recognition. They might have started as receptionists and became press or promo. So there's, there's this whole wave of women that were part of the even like late 70s and early 80s whose 
whose names just don't tend to come up as as much. So much in hip hop has been told and told again through books and documentaries and everything, but there's still a lot of terrain that hasn't been touched, really. So, what's the difficulty level of you, like, really, as far as like pounding the desk and demanding that respect? Like, do you have to be tough as nails? Or what's 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 old girl from uh, who who ran Vogue and uh, uh, Winter? Right. Anna do you winter. have to come? Do you oh. have to run it Anna Winter style? And you know, no, no, no. Uh, there's well, I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. You know, I get asked a lot uh, over the years. People said, "Well, what was it like being a woman in the hip hop world, or what was it like being a white woman in the hip hop world?" And I'm like, my response is usually like, "You know what? There were so many opportunities for women." in the fledgling hip hop industry. Again, it was Mm -hmm. so small back then. Um, If I had gone to say, oh, you know, Columbia Records or Mercury or Polygram or whatever, Mm -hmm. Warner Brothers, you know, and said, hey, you know, I'm looking for a job. I would have been lucky to get, you know, be the uh, coffee runner for some guy doing mid-Atlantic radio promotion, okay? So in hip hop, because it was just a small little industry and no one was really checking, you know, like uh, a lot of women were able to sort of get ahead in this business because there wasn't like a precedent. It wasn't an old boys network, you know, so it was still being it was still being the story was being written. And, you know, there was a lot of, of opportunities, although I will say when I went to the first Jack the Rapper convention, uh a yep. lot of people thought I was hired help for another reason. So, like, oh, but you wow. know, Jack the Rapper convention, that's another documentary somebody should do. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, boy. Tales from the rap convention. <laughs> so, okay. Um, when, when, okay. So in 86, when Club Nouveau starts hitting, you know, Lean On Me and Jealousy and all that stuff was yes. highly, it was unescapable. Like by that point, you guys are, just you know a force was there ever temptation to say leave tommy boy and maybe and i i don't want to discredit hip-hop's you know force or whatnot but in the mind state of 87 did you ever have the temptation or did someone from rca or warner brothers or quote a legit major label try to to poach you away and say come work for us yeah uh, there was a label, uh, A&M, actually. And, and A&M was a real class operation, you know? It was. I mean, they were sort of like, uh, and they even bought me a plane ticket and put me in a hotel. I was like, oh, my God, you know, this is pretty great. Right. Um, but I, it didn't, didn't happen. I, I really sort of sensed that I was better where I was. And it turned out to be true, you know, um, because it was towards – you know, I was made president, I guess, 85, 86, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, it was towards the end, you know, towards the late 80s, where I really oversaw A&R and the creative direction for the label. I was already doing quite a bit already in both of those areas. And, um, and also, you know, uh, in the early days, whether it was collecting money from distributors or putting in pressers with the pressing plant or getting the label copy typed up or sitting with Bambada while he wrote out a special thanks or creating a press list and writing press releases, 
talking to you, you name it. It was like, you got to do a lot of different things, but it was, you know, in the late eighties where I sort of really, I think that was a really golden era for Tommy boy in the late eighties and the early nineties. In, in 1988, you know, for me, at least in my life, one of the greatest paradigm shifts that really affected, I mean, 88 was such a banner year, but you sign a group that literally changes the, the course of my life. And we've, we've had various people involved with De La Soul projects. So we, you know, you don't have to go through the, the everyday. But what I do want to know is who was responsible for the genius marketing of De La Soul? Because from the, from the press photos to the fonts to the stickers, you know, for only time in my life I ever got sent to the principal's office was because I put De La Soul stickers all over my high school. Like, so who was responsible? Like, who, what was the brainchild operation of we can make these guys bigger than hip hop? I that read point? that hip hop for hippies. Wasn't that your shit? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is. Yeah. I was very involved in all of that, but it was also um, – a, there's a lot of people at Tommy Boy that I would credit for being a huge part of this campaign. I think that it was a very critical decision to have the Gray organization do the uh, all the, you know, all of the the Daisy, all, all the mm-hmm. imagery for the um, for the album cover. That was so. That was I would say such a radical move at that point because. They basically sort of threw down a gauntlet uh, to what the prevailing visual aesthetic was of hip hop. And I think it was the type of thing that a lot of people were like, what is this? But, you know, but, but, but the thing is, before the album, before the album and you saw all those visuals, you know, Plug Tunin was a radical record. And, and, and I still have, I still have the demo tape and I still have the, the write-up that I did after my meeting with Daddio. And I want to make sure to credit Daddio because it was Daddio from Stetsasonic who called me and said, Hey, I've got these groups I'm shopping. Can we set up a meeting? I'm like, yeah, da, da, da. And he said on the phone, there were three groups. Two of them were like sort of these more mainstream, like Renee and Angela type of groups or something. And, right. he, and he mentioned uh, De La Soul. He said, oh, and there's this group that Paul's working with called De La Soul. And I do remember thinking, that's a really intriguing name. You know, what mm-hmm. is that? It didn't sound like a hip hop group. And um, so I met with him and that's in that demo tape of plug tuning and um, was it Freedom, Freedom of Speak, I think. Uh, was oh, on, on, the, on the B, B side, yeah, freedom. Yeah, of it was, but it was the two tracks on the on the one cassette, and it was like you immediately knew that it was either going to be big or nothing, and that's where I think Tommy Boy's legacy largely lies with signings that were sort of in that category. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to love it or you're going to hate it, but it wasn't in the middle. And um, De La Soul, I think, personifies that, and. You know, the, the demo of plug tuning sounds pretty much, ex- I'm pretty sure, I don't think that it was even even mixed. Uh, you Jeez, know, I, I think it was an eight track that Paul did. And I don't think it even went beyond that by the time it was mastered. I think it was still like this eight track 
demo sounding thing. And we had this, we did this ad campaign where we got all these different people to say, you, you know, you know how it is, you know, like when you know, well, oh, Latifah's mom, she was part of it. Latifah's mom, the late yeah. Rita Owens, we did, we did a campaign that I came in for De La Soul. I came in for Patti LaBelle. I came out with De La Soul. I came in, I, we had this one with like some goofy, you know, sort of straight looking white guy. Like, you know, I came in for, um, I forget. It wasn't Steely Dan. We, we hung like, that up in Sam Goody's. I, I worked at Sam Goody's at the time. Oh, man. Yeah, well, then you know. So this, really? yeah, so we that, part, that imaging yeah. campaign, I think, was fantastic. We had a, a great full page ad in Billboard that said De La Gold when it went mm-hmm. gold. But, you know, I think it, a lot of it sprung from the group itself because, you know, I still have, and I shared this with Pass actually just last week. Um, he sat down in the office and with this, his, he has a very distinctive style of cursive. Mm-hmm. And he was writing down the history of De La Soul on this notebook paper, set, describing who each group member was. And they, he was writing it in De La Speak. And that was another mm-hmm. thing, too, because, like, nobody knew what the fuck they were talking about. Right. They had their own language. Like, what do they talk? What, what do you mean plug tune in? What's that, you know? And what is True Goy the Dove? You know, what is all this stuff? Right. Um, but they, but they had a different look. They had a different sensibility. So there was a lot there to already work with and to sort of get inspired to do interesting and creative marketing and promotion. Uh, you really can't do something unless the, something, the, the, the project and the recordings and the artists that you're working with are interesting in and of themselves. You can blow it up and magnify it, but if they're not, if it's not inherently interesting and great you can't really do anything so so they really they were like wow this group pretty interesting there a lot of people played a role i don't know if you know rod houston because he's also from 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 philadelphia he's now one of the biggest voice artists he's a voice actor guy yeah yeah he's huge he's huge and rod um i still have the copy that he wrote up because we did this contest to name the sample and yeah i remember that in billboard yeah did you did you uh, enter? I didn't. Contest? I didn't know the Liberace or or any. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got. I still have a lot of the entries from the contest wow. that I kept. A lot of people thought it was Bobby Bloom, and the right. only person who got the who the only person who got it right was Joel Weber, as I mentioned to him earlier, with the um, partners in the New Music Seminar, and he's the guy who put out. He was an A&R guy at Fourth uh, and Broadway in Ireland. He put out the Dominatrix Sleeps Tonight. And he okay. was the only one who identified the invitations, right? It's written on the wall as a sample right. record. So they, so there was a lot of really great things that sort of sprung from the fact that the group themselves were so different and so interesting. And I think that that whole Daisy Age imagery you know, it was a, certainly a blessing and a curse for the group because then they didn't really like being hit, named the hippies of hip hop and, right. you know, pushed back against it. You know, but that was that album, Three Feet High and Rising, you know, and that was actually the first project I assigned to Dante. You know, I saw the, wow. the 
Dante, make sure you get the this da, 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 and get the clearances for so and so and so and so. But it was the first project that he worked on, which was fantastic. He did an amazing job. And Paul, of course, you know. Yeah, he's Paul. You know, yeah. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From 1 to 10, how much of a headache was the the Flo and Eddie situation? Because, of course, uh, Flo and Eddie of the Turtles um, sort of, you know, recognizes their sample and then you know, we're taught that that was the that was the gauntlet moment of rappers clearing samples for, you know, was that a quick one and done? Oh, my bad. Here's 40,000 bucks. Or were they like, we want a, f- a billion dollars? And, you know, this is that's, um, you know, that's another great topic because the, the De La Soul Three Feet High and Rising really did become the litmus test for a lot of sampling issues. And it became the poster child for. Everything that could go wrong is all here on one album. And, um, and you know, so it wasn't just Flo and Eddie. You know, I, have, I still have the uh, letter from MCA publishing about Steely Dan. Where oh, they, where yeah. They, where, yeah. By the way, they misspelled Donald Fagan's name. But it became sort of a blessing and a curse. It was, well, I should say maybe more of a curse because look at all, everything that the group has had to go through all these years. Yeah, I hear it's problematic now trying to clear these samples again. Still, yeah. yeah. So, um, but it also became, it was certainly a news story. I mean, as you, Kurt Loder, you know, and I, there was all these like news stories about 
sampling. It became a big thing, you know. And of course, you know, uh, Daddio, uh, Stesasonic addressed this very uh, brilliantly in talking Talk all that jazz. Right. One of the best records ever. And, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it was certainly costly. It was a distraction. And the thing about it is this, this is my takeaway from it, is that at that point in 1989, a lot of these rock guys were really of the mindset of like, they're stealing my fucking art. And they weren't down with the hip hop. They weren't down with the sampling. They had very closed minds about this. There was not a... um, it had not been established as a, a path. You know, like, oh, yeah, okay, we'll just get the sample cleared. Like today, I mean, now, you know, I think a lot of people maybe avoid sampling to a large right. degree for all the problems and costs associated with it. But um, it's ironic to me, being as though those same guys sampled old blues records to create their songs. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. But <laughs> that's you the had, irony of it. You all. had these guys who were older rock guys with big you know they had egos and they just had they were their mindset was completely divorced right from hip-hop being a cool interesting thing and oh wow they're taking something i made and doing something cool and flipping it a lot of these guys did not see that that way at all well i know that george clinton was extremely he had gratitude for me myself and i at least because you know, he he instantly saw that okay, this is bringing me back clearly to a new audience. So, I'm well, down yeah. with it. Well, yeah, and you also had Westbound uh, Records. Um, Armand Baladian. Armand Baladian, thank you very much. Oh Jesus! Yeah, so Armand <laughs> Baladian was was definitely playing ball. I mean, you know, he saw that there was money to be made in doing sample clearances. So, you know, whether it was Digital Underground or Dale or whoever it was, he's, you know, he owned a lot of this stuff. And right. uh, so he wasn't reluctant in the way that a lot of the rock guys were about you know, violating their art, mm-hmm. you know, it was, yeah. it was just said it was a different, again, you have commerce on the one side and you've got these guys who were like, man, right. that's, you know, don't touch my shit, mm-hmm. man. You know? So, right. I was going to ask Monica, what is your um, involvement, if any, uh, with the current day La situation with trying to get their catalog on the streaming? Uh, none is my, okay. uh, I don't have any involvement in that except to be supportive of the group. And, um, you know, uh, you know, I occasionally have back and forth with, uh, with Paz and, um, you know, I have a lot of love for those guys and I hope that, you know, th- they've been through a lot. They've been through a lot. So, but I don't, have, I've never, I haven't had any sort of dealings with their business. Gotcha. I I believe our good friend Faith Newman is now at the helm of that project and trying to re-clear the samples and all that stuff. Wow. I hope for Dela's sake that that comes through. Well, I mean, they have it, but, you know, now it's like they got to do the work and, you know, find somebody to fund. You know, they're they're doing it, but it's just a very slow process, song by song, and they want it as they, you know, thank God, I'm so relieved that they're not doing, you know, the shit now where people like redoing their sits on iTunes and gagging you with like 
these yeah. kind of subpar versions of of their songs yeah, re-record is or whatever uh, i hate that um wait yeah. I, okay wait i, I want to give a shout out to a uh, dart adams who a surefire way to make him angry is to acknowledge that three feet high and rising came out march 3rd 1989 <laughs> dart adams <laughs> <laughs> I've never met a person more angrier when he's like, it wasn't March 3rd. It was February 7th. Yes. Oh, so really? I just, Maybe he's thinking of the promo. The promo. No, he, oh my God. You just, you're about to set dark. Oh, okay. The views and opinions of Monica Lynch are not like. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't know his shit. Don't Listen, I say I have a lot of Tommy Boy archival materials. I could pro it's I'm not saying uh, so for sure. You can officially tell us when the release date was because I swear to God, he makes this every March 3rd. He gets mad as shit when Poss or any member of De La Soul gets the date wrong. But he swears to God that like March 3rd, he's like like Wikipedia's wrong, everything's wrong. Like he knows. Listen, I'll, I'll just say this. At some point, I'll go through all, <laughs> go all. This. If I find anything that um, might have led to his uh, belief, on yeah, this, if, I'll let you if know. You but scan a photo. Could, the only thing I could possibly think is that maybe you know, because again, lead times for things like press uh, were significant back then. Right. Um, so maybe, just maybe, there was an advanced copy, but I don't want to, you know, that's not official. So yeah. I, I have one quick question about Sonic. Now, yes. the way that you guys, the way that you guys pushed Force MDs to be, you know, a, the the duop, you know, hip hop thing, and De La were the hippies of hip hop, with the exception of a, a brief write up and spin, like I felt like not enough was done to really drive home at least the marketing that this is a hip-hop band yeah it wasn't an easy sell and i've never seen them i've never heard stetsasonic live ever like even when you really youtube no I've, there's no there's no footage of them on youtube or anything like i'm taking you guys's word for it that stetsasonic live in concert is a band but there's there's no oh. I mean, you know, on in on wax, you know, besides Bobby Simmons playing drums on stuff, and you know, I know they did live stuff on keys, but I've just never seen sets oh. of Sonic on stage, Turn and there's up. no footage of them. They're almost like the Harlem Cultural Festival. Like I that's, don't believe it. That's that's pretty interesting. I it had never really thought about that. I didn't go to look, but I mean, I'd seen them perform live, and they were really you know, fantastic. I think the, man, it was very frustrating because they, you know, Stetsasonic as a group, they really worked hard and, and, you know, it was frustrating. I mean, everyone wants to have big hits and um, they had some hits, but they weren't on the level that is going to push you into a certain territory. You know, I think talking all that jazz was like a, a really, you know, when you look back at the catalog, I think that one to me is like, in, yeah. but they had, you know, Sally was like a, a mm-hmm. record that did really well in Florida and other markets. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and, you know, Go Stetsa, Brooklyn, Go Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Oh, Jesus. No, well, 
you can't even on this put, show. As soon as you put, somebody's told me recently said you put that record you on get your ass beat. At, at the at Union Square, and that was a signal for stick up kids to like get there, yeah, <laughs> get the loot, you know, like yes. oh shit. That's why I always stood near the door at that place. I was like, that, that drum roll is a <laughs> traumatizing yeah, nightmare. I, yeah, totally. So they always got huge respect, and they had great records, but they they just you know, and it's a, it's it's a frustration even to this day, you know, that we weren't able to break them out in a huger way. Right. It happens, and um, yeah. I was going to uh, ask you, Monica, about Shock G. Um, I just hate. He's yeah. someone that we had on our list uh, for a long right. time, but um, you know we you know sadly didn't get an interview him before he passed. What was he like, just as an artist, as a producer? What was it like working with him? You know, I've, I've um, actually just had a, a long conversation with his um, his former manager, Atron, last night. We stayed oh, wow. in touch, okay. yeah. And Shock, we used to talk on the phone, and he Shock was he was incredibly intelligent. So smart, so funny. He was very charming. He had um, an enormous gift as a visual artist. You know, I had a lot of dealing, you know, he was, we had a great relationship. He would always be very, very specific about artwork. I, I have some like layouts that he would send me these rough layouts you know, this needs to go exactly here, this goes exactly here, because he did all the artwork for mm-hmm. all the digital underground releases. And even starting with um, the early uh, version of, of uh, Underwater Rhymes and Life's a Cartoon, that the 12 inch that they had before uh, McCullough before uh, they came to Tommy Boy, but the, um, uh, well, TNT recordings. The, uh, but he was someone who was very deep. I, I spoke with Latifa recently about him too. Well, shortly after he passed, we we spoke about it because she talked about how she went on tour with him and they would just go to the hotel lobby and he would start just noodling on the piano. He's a great jazz musician and she loved jazz and they had a strong connection there. He was just, um, he was an artist with a capital A, you know, Man. And, and he, you know, obviously he brought Tupac, you know, uh, was largely responsible for bringing Tupac into the world uh, as an artist. And, um, uh, yeah, really, really special guy. I've never met any, you know, like, especially these days where everything, mar- beefs seem to be a marketing tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were beefs back then, you know, you could look at Karis one or, you know, whatever was going on. There's always some sort of beefs going on. But no, with, with Shock, he was, everyone loved him. You know, uh, I was talking to Pete Nice when they, he was uh, traveled with the uh, third base with them. And he had huge love for him. I don't know. I don't know what I can say about Shock G other than he was just, I would have late night phone calls with him and he could just expound on just about anything. <laughs> he was that guy. He was very cosmic. He was very cosmic. Yeah. So, okay, ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you guys that we will have a part two with Monica Lynch, uh, the legendary Monica Lynch on Quest Love Supreme. Uh, this incredible conversation. Uh, we will be back in a later episode to talk about basically the 90s with Coolio, with K7, with LFO, 
with the RZA. Yo, there's so much more to, that, that that will happen on the next episode of Quest Love Supreme. Uh, and you'll promise to come back with us, Monica, correct? Absolutely. Thank you. Beautiful. All right. So on behalf of Sugar Steve and Unpaid Bill and Fontigolo yeah. and Laia, this is Questo. And shout out to Cousin Jake holding us down on the leads. And, uh, you know, we will see you on the next go round. Thank you very much. Happy Women's History Mom. Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.